Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. Welcome to our newest series, Dear Louise, a collection of conversations with those who have personally been impacted or touched in some way by spinal cord injury. Dear Louise provides a deeper understanding of spinal cord injury in all of its dimensions and complexity, including insights into the trauma healing journey with conversations you don't want to miss. Stay tuned. This episode is sponsored by the Blink of an Eye nonprofit. Did you know our podcast sponsor, the 501c3 nonprofit, I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation, is now the Blink of an Eye nonprofit. And they have a launch campaign to raise funds so they can go bedside with SCI families in crisis. You can donate at www.blinkofaneye.org for the HEAL team, bringing hope, empowerment, advocacy, and logistical navigation tips with love to SCI families in crisis. If you are interested in volunteering or becoming part of the Blink of an Eye cutting-edge relational approaches to trauma healing, medical navigation, and emotional and spiritual support for SCI families in crisis, fill out an information form at www.blinkofaneye.org. Follow Blink of an Eye on Instagram and Facebook at Blink of an Eye Nonprofit. Links to these platforms will be in the show notes. Today's podcast is being brought to you by Baltimore Mediation. Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue. You can learn more at baltimoremediation.com. The Dear Louise series is really a celebration of spinal cord injury triumphs, the ways in which everyday, vibrant people, their friends, and their loved ones have navigated their way through the SCI trauma back to life, and for many, how they are giving back. And this series starts with you, dear listener, for what you are interested in hearing about. Each episode of the Dear Louise series begins with a question related to SCI or the SCI trauma healing journey posed by a blink of an eye listener. I offer my own insights, and then I bring in a guest who has direct personal experience with SCI, who can lend their wisdom to the topic. You may send in your question to louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. Today, our question comes from a listener whose teenaged son is two months into his SCI recovery. For confidentiality, she preferred not to share her name at this time. But through my work with the Blink of an Eye nonprofit, I was able to connect personally with her and listen to her situation and her questions. She shared so much about the overwhelm of the early months of recovery and all of the medical, logistical, and emotional hurdles to move through and balance. In the midst of it all, She mentioned feeling not only overwhelmed, but isolated. So few people in her life seemed to be able to grasp the experience or full understanding of what it means to have a son who has a high spine spinal cord injury. She spoke of the exhaustion she felt in her many interactions with her friends when she had to explain over and over or had to correct someone's false assumptions, which had become emotionally laborious at a time when she is already emotionally stretched. She spoke of having the experience of connecting with one other mom of an SCI-injured son, and she told me that the connection she had with this mom, though she was a stranger who had been introduced to her, felt in some ways, more familiar and comfortable than with some of her best friends at the moment. 
She said it was hard to explain because she loves her good friends very much. But there was just an immediate, I get you with this other mom without having to explain herself or anything. She said she could talk to this mom about things that are simply already understood and require no extra explanation or energy. Her question to me was, how do I build on that relationship? How do I find a new community, both for myself and for my family, with people who have tips and resources and practical things I need to learn? How do I find people locally who understand and can connect about all the ins and outs of what this experience means? And I don't want to lose my good friends, but I can't handle when they reach out and text me big, broad questions like, how are you? Well, listeners, I'd like to share some of my thoughts to her questions. First of all, I want to acknowledge, especially for those listening who are in a similar situation, it is hard. The human person only has so much energy, and it's all getting tapped in the first days and weeks and months of SCI injury. There may not be many people in your area, if any, who have similar SCI experiences. And if there are, you may need to work hard to seek them out, and you don't have the energy to do so. I get that. But it's absolutely worth it to find others who have been there. There is an everlasting truism for humans that we feel safe when we are with others who are like we are, those who share common experiences. And it requires, it's true, less effort to find mutual support in sharing stories, resources, and connections. But with Zoom and a smartphone, you can expand your community and be connected to other moms or parents who are not geographically close, but who are just a Zoom call away. And as for your friends, they care deeply about you, but they're often overwhelmed too by how best to respond to you. As SCI is all new to them, as well. I want to share with you a resource being developed now the Blink of an Eye Nonprofit's Digital Resource Library. You'll be able to find it at blinkofaneye.org. It's a resource library created by SCI families for SCI families. It will be a one stop shop for any SCI family for what they need to know, need to ask with tips and what to avoid, focused on the first weeks and months after injury. And Blink of an Eye knows how important old friends are as well. And the resource library is designed for them too. How to be helpful, what is not helpful, what to say or do, what not to say or do all informed by relational conflict theory and trauma healing approaches. It'll be chock full of practical tips for all in the crisis time of SCI, filling a gap for all families trying to survive and friends who want to be helpful. As the digital resource library grows, it will also be a place you can post a question and be connected to a fellow SCI family for a meaningful response or conversation. You know, being open to receiving help and connection can also be surprisingly hard during a medical crisis due to the trauma experience, where some families really need to dial it back with activity or help to preserve their own energy while other families welcome and need a great deal of outside support, experiencing a lift in energy from those interactions. Either response is normal 
even families experiencing the lift, are often exhausted too. And it can be hard to do any other outreach. But reaching back to someone with SCI who has reached out to you, while it may feel insurmountable in those moments or may fall to the bottom of the priority list that day and what seems like every day, well, I assure you, it's worth it for your mental health to create that connection. It's one of the first steps for how to build your SCI community after SCI injury. Building a community and a network is not just important for your mental health and sense of belonging. It's also critical for sharing information and receiving information that may promote the well-being and healing of your SCI loved one. More than anything, it is also paramount to be gentle with yourself. Yes, being proactive and establishing connections is very beneficial and will serve you in the short term and in the long run, too. And at the same time, you won't build community in a day. It takes time to discern the relationships that feel most aligned and to deepen the connections with people who will be your touchstones for the coming months, years, and decades. It is worth the effort. And if you are too exhausted, it is worth putting the intention clearly in your heart to reach out when you're stronger. Then just trust that it will come in the way it was meant to. I want to introduce you today to Kelly Sidnor, an SCI mom from Richmond, Virginia. Kelly, who calls herself the Trauma Mama, reached out to me in the early days after Archer's crisis while I was in the Shepherd Center with him, facing so many challenges and everything was still so complicated. I'm forever grateful to her. Because she and I stayed connected, you'll be listening in to a more intimate conversation between, well, two SCI moms who look back together at how we learned and how this first contact was a cornerstone for me in establishing my community. Kelly has a lot to offer us today with detailed tips and suggestions for anyone navigating the early daily challenges of SCI. Welcome to the third installment of our Dear Louise series. How do you build your SCI community after injury? With Kelly Sidnor. Settle in. Take a deep breath. And feel the energy of the collective community we are creating together in this moment. Here we go. Kelly is what she calls a retired caregiver now. She's also the mom of Cole Sidnor, who is also a quadriplegic, injured in August, the, the fateful August for so many quadriplegic families, 11 years ago, 2011. And it was Kelly who was the first person to reach out to me mom to mom, when we were in the throes of our lives being upside down while we were at Atlantic Care back in the very, very early days of the Blink of an Eye journey. And it is a really unique opportunity for you to look back 11 years and for me, seven years, 
when a family's life is so turned upside down and especially when so little is really understood by so many hospitals, the human person is thrown into like you've got horse blinders on at the races. Your bandwidth is very narrow. And so when people come and say, oh, well, look into this or here's a really great resource. The best way to be of service and to love and to calm somebody who is in the situation that you and I were both in is to meet them where they are. Right. Is it, do you see it that way? Yes, but it's hard when the, um, to, to meet them where they are emotionally, yes. Meeting them where they are physically is even more impossible because there's, these injuries happen all over the place. Yeah. And they're, they're not rare, but they don't happen every day. And it's catastrophic when it happens. So when it does, there's only like a speckling of people that can really relate and they're not always in your neighborhood. Yeah. And so when I met with or spoke to women, especially the moms, I would say, let's, let's not, we're not going to chit chat. We can only talk about what your child needs right now. This is your next move. This is your next step. Focus on this one thing. You can just get this accomplished today. It'll, it'll be a great milestone for you. Just trust me on that. Focus on this. And don't get distracted by everything else because there is so much to distract. And I like to narrow in on one or two priorities for that day. And then call me in the morning. Let me know, you know, what's the next thing? Because then we could come up with a plan together about what's the next step based on what happened the day before. And I wish I could be closer instead of just intermittent phone calls and texts back and forth when there's a gap in the day. Kelly was introduced to me by a friend of a friend, as I knew no one in the spinal cord injury world at the time. The support I felt from Kelly and others was part of the inspiration for the Blink of an Eye nonprofit we launched to serve SCI families, both bedside and from afar, 24-7 in the first 30 days of the SCI trauma with practical SCI navigation tips, emotional support, and trauma-informed, trauma-healing relational responses. Even if it's not spinal cord injury, the the message is for, for families, if you can figure it out and ask your friends to help you, stay bedside. We know jobs are at stake. We know families' income is at stake. We know that childcare is at stake. We know taking care of property or a house, all of it's at stake. But the importance of having the consistency, preferably of the same person bedside, truly almost 24-7, or figuring out when are the safer times for somebody else to come relieve you. But rounds Rounds almost always happen in hospitals very early in the morning. And you might be at the beginning or the middle or the end, but it's somewhere between five in the morning and eight in the morning. And usually they're kind of finished by like about seven or seven fifteen. Right. And if you and miss so I made it, sure yes. I did not run to the restroom. Exactly. I didn't go get a muffin down at the uh, cafeteria. No, those hours were sacred time because I had to be on watch ready for them to walk down that hallway and I could see them coming. I knew what, what room they were in, how much longer it was going to take. And it made a huge difference. Makes a I huge think difference. For us. Yes, I think so too. And, and for, for anyone listening in to know that if, if you can't advocate for your loved one, who is, I mean, that's, that's our job. And so to make, make yourself known, and oftentimes, the information that is shared, because I so concur with you, I would say in a week that six mornings of a seven-morning week, I had different information than what they were operating on because it was just cursory, it was sort of glossy, or it was that they were going to call in somebody that might come in a day, and we needed it like now. And... 
I do think with a relational skill set and not not being demure, but also seeing yourself as part of the medical team, that they right. then will right. begin to see you as a valuable um, entity as well as, as you experienced. And it's, it's really critical. And another piece on that actually is asking the doctors who would just hover out in the hallway for like three minutes, you know, on your son for the, the next 24 hours to come have them come bedside and have their oh, conversation yeah. so that Cole could hear or Archer could hear, even if they were completely knocked out or had their eyes closed in our case, I would just include him and I'd say, Archer's listening to you. And sometimes I'd say, Arch, blink your eyes two times to let the, the doctors know that you are listening in. I'd say, that's not what my son wants, or my son really wants this. And I say, Archer, blink your eyes if, if that's accurate. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Do what I say. <laughs> exactly. And if you don't blink them, darn it. <laughs> but sometimes like we really had to mom. wait. Yeah. Yeah. Like hanging yeah. on. But I think what, well, what you did out in the hallways and... That kind of advocacy is really, really critical. Mm-hmm. I I don't know how available that is to everyone because my child was 16. So I could be there like by law. I could be in that room because he was a child. Uh, once they're 18, that's a whole other realm that I think that people have to fight through because the, you have to adhere to certain visiting hours. I didn't have to worry about that with a child. And also, you know, this whole HIPAA thing, you know, every time it's like, is it okay for your mother to hear with I mean, I didn't have to fight with that. And I didn't have to deal with COVID situations. And I just cannot even imagine what it would be like to have a child in a hospital and you couldn't be with them with us as a spinal cord injured patient under a COVID protocol. So that's just another level of difficulty, not that it's not difficult enough, but throw that into the mix. And I can see people just really struggling. I can't imagine either what it would have been like during COVID. I just can't imagine. Even as COVID protocols have relaxed in hospital settings and family members may have more access to being bedside, with their loved ones who are injured, there is still such a tremendous gap nationwide in the resources and skills needed to respond to spinal cord injury for both families, friends, and medical staff. When someone is injured, the first critical decision made is often made by the local fire department or emergency response team for where to transport the injured person. If an injured SCI person is lucky, they will be flown or transported to the nearest level one hospital. However, even level one trauma centers often do not have SCI expertise. In most cases, the trauma centers throughout the United States do not have doctors and nurses on staff who have specialized training in high spine injuries. There are certainly centers where that expertise exists, but there are currently only 14 model system SCI centers in the United States. It's staggering, really, when you think about what is at stake in this complicated injury and what little knowledge there is of such centers for fire departments and first responders who make the decisions on directing where an SCI injured person is flown or transported. These first decisions can set the course of recovery or greater suffering. Even in a model facility where Kelly and her son were, there was still a steep learning curve. Let's hear more from Kelly. I'm not grateful that Cole got injured, but if he was going to get injured, I'm so glad we were moments away from a level one trauma hospital and they knew what they were doing. But when it came to rehab, that wasn't necessarily their expertise. They were about stabilizing 
fixing, you know, fix the bones, stabilize the patient. And after that, let's yeah. go, let's go to the next phase where they're, they're experts in helping them to turn, you know, helping them figure out how to even hit the call button. You yeah, know, yeah. Cole couldn't call anybody for himself. He was not equipped in that room for that because it's not an everyday thing that someone comes in with a spinal cord injury. Uh, so it was great to get him to a rehab hospital that could do all those things. And he would see remarkable advances within minutes of arrival. <laughs> was, that, that's it how it was amazing. really for us too. Although we did have a hiccup. Archer couldn't get out of Shepherd Center's ICU for weeks but it was really astounding, just the whole sip and puff, you know, that he could call a nurse, that he had some autonomy being restored within probably 12 hours of, of being mm-hmm. there after a full and month. And changing your channel with the sip and puff. Do you remember that? They could change the, t- turn the TV on and off and change the channel. And it just gave back a level of independence that had been taken away for so long while they were in ICU. That's right. At least for Cole at, you know, the initial ICU, when he got to Shepherd Center, he also went straight to the ICU at Shepherd. So I know exactly where Archer was and what that was like. Yeah. You just praying to get to the floor. You just, just want to get to the floor. Praying to get to the floor. Right. You can taste uh, it. You can see it. It's right around the corner. <laughs> I know. You're going to love it, Archer. You're going to love it. I promise. Exactly. <laughs> I'm thinking you're being referred to as the trauma mama. How do you suppose people came to call you that? Or did you proclaim that for yourself? I may have come up with that myself. Because they said, uh, you know, it was the trauma network that actually asked me to come and be a volunteer in the hospital and meet new patients as they were in the very first hours of the injury. And not to talk somebody off the ledge, but to talk somebody off the ledge. Yeah, exactly. They're they're terrified. They were just like I was. You know, you, you think you know what spinal cord injury is, but you don't know. You don't know until you're in it 100%. And it was very shocking. And I've said before, there were some things that I thought were a lot worse than they were and things that were a lot better than I thought they were, you know. Can you you think about some of those things that were a lot better or some of those things that were a lot worse? Yes. So when I first saw Cole laying there in the bed, flat on his back, my thought was, this is what he's going to do for the rest of his life. And I'm going, he's going to be mine for the rest of his life. And I have a six, three child, you know, laying there in the bed and I'm going to be changing his clothes and he's just going to be laying there. And his life was over. That's what I thought. Well, I was wrong. It's a lot better than that. There is life after spinal cord injury and it can be glorious. It just depends on your attitude and um, the amount of advocating that loved ones will do for you. So I think that part was a lot better when they said, oh, no, you know, he's going to be able to drive one day. Well, I was like, ah, no, I did not know that. So if he could drive, then he's going to get up. He's going to go to school. He's going to go to college. Hopefully he'll get married one day. And so all of those hopes and dreams were restored almost immediately when they said he could possibly drive one day. This is not the end of the world. And so that was huge. I needed to hear that as a mom, but then certain parts of his care about program, that was worse than I thought it was going to be. I mean, cause I'd never done it before. And I thought, really, this is, this is what we're doing now. Okay. You know, and I was on board, but I didn't realize that every person that has that kind of a high-level spinal cord injury is going to have those types of deficits that have to be dealt with. Yeah, yeah. Which is, that was shocking to me. And, you know, not being able to walk, that's kind of like the least of your worries. I just needed my child to breathe. I didn't know a spinal cord injury might affect his ability to breathe or to eat or to speak. Those were the kinds of things that were, um, I was enlightened very quickly and, you know, step by step, you chip away at, at the progress. Chip, chip, chip away is what I would say. And, yeah. um, one, one, one foot in front of the other, kind of mm-hmm. ironically. You know, it, it's so interesting that you share that because what I 
we'll share could be the inverse of that. For I think the learning might be that trauma hits people in different ways and mm-hmm. overwhelm is overwhelm and it then manifests in one way or another. So for me, instead of seeing Archer like this is how it is and being overwhelmed, I I couldn't see that. Right. I I just saw him like we got to get up and going because my son's going to walk again and he's going to use his arms again and he's a beautiful artist and he's six foot three and he's an athlete. I, I just refused to really see what in a number of ways was right there. And then when it wasn't really any longer, a month, two months later, when we were still just trying to have Archer breathe not even breathe on his own, but just to be able to breathe on a machine because he's C2, C5 complete and did not have enough innervation for his diaphragm, that then it was like, no, he will breathe on his own, but the walking and the using his arms and his hands became so secondary. Correct. And then the bowel program, as, as Shepard called it, with all the bowel movements that every human being, if you're if you're healthy, has every day, I mm-hmm. just in my mind it was just more like what nurses do, and then it like heals or something and gets better, and then I realized, oh no, I needed to learn the program right. and how to do that, and it scared me. And I think that you're not the only one that it scared. The first time I saw it, I was like, okay, so this is it, huh? And then after that one time, it's like, get out of my way. It's mine. I was the exact same way. One time, it's like, I just want to make sure I wouldn't hurt him. I I think it was so foreign to think that I was digitally stimulating what his body does beautifully and naturally on its own. It just needed help. And and that yeah. was like okay, I, th- this is this is my piece too, but that didn't happen okay. right away because our back and forth at Shepherd was that Shepherd was doing that, and it, mm-hmm. I wasn't being taught that until Archer was to go home, and I was watching very carefully, but if I hadn't learned that and sort of felt the exact same way you did, like kind of get out of my way, like this is my son, I'm going to be able to do this now, we took that with us to the next trauma center hospital and they had never heard of digital stem for the bowel program they just would have the injured Magic child bullet. on the side with the suppository yeah and yeah. um we were like no 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 no. we're working with gravity you know we're going to put him in a lift um do, do the bowel program and so then that was my biggest advocacy struggle then with them because archer landed back in the pick you the pediatric ICU at Johns Hopkins because they refused the nurses refused to do the bowel program that is crazy yeah well you know I I wanted to do it right away like whatever the nurses were doing show me how show me what you're doing how can I help and I think at first they thought wow she's just this mother is all in our business but then they started to realize that I'm I I'm wanted to be helpful. I wasn't trying to hang out over them and watch their every move in a negative way. I was really gleaning as much information as I could. I really was truly interested because I knew it was going to be mine. I was going to have to do it. I wanted to do it as well or better than they did it. And they never really had a mother that was that hands-on. And so I would start looking around because they'd say, you're the only one that's doing this. And I'm thinking, why, why? And so I watched other parents and while their child was at the hospital, they were letting the staff take care of it all. And that wasn't, that, that just wasn't my um, approach at all. I wanted to do it all for them. So they taught me probably more than they taught other people because I was open and willing and a sponge and I wanted to learn. And I think Cole really appreciate that too. Yeah, I'm sure that he did. I love that. I I was not on the issues of the bowel program and other kinds of dressings and things that were regularly needing to be changed for Archer. And as I look back, because I really thought that that 
that was going to be passing. And my focus was on becoming an absolute expert in how to put all the tubes down his trach because Archer was constantly being suctioned out. We we had regular code. We would code blue at Shepherd the whole time we were there. He could just Bye. never get past the all the breathing and extra hits of oxygen, the oxygen tank, and then the anexaflator to try and get his lungs pumped up. And it was so grueling and so ghastly, painful. Violent. 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 Violent for yes, months, you know? months. And the, did you do this? Um, did you do the butterfly cough? Oh, yes, we did. But Archer yeah. couldn't even, he didn't have enough to even, to to cough at all. No. So that everybody's journey is, you know, a little different and also so the same. Yeah, it is. Well, I, I had a parent come to me once and she says, I just can't do it. I can't do bodily fluids. You know, I'm not going to be able to do an IC. I'm not going to be able to do a bowel program. And the way she was talking, I was someone to say, yes, you. And I did. I finally said, you will, you can, you're going to do it. <laughs> and she's like, no, I can't do it. Kelly. I said, yes, yes, you can. You can, and you will. And she is now a CNA. How about that? How right? about that? Someone wow. So it, cha it changed her whole career path. Right. Well, she's a CNA, but she does other things too, but she got her certification. So, um, but to think that initially she wasn't going to do anything, even wipe his nose because, you know, no bodily fluid. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You're going to wow. have to. You know, and, I'm wondering what, what advice you would offer to a family in an SCI crisis. Mm. Oh, I would first offer, um, in terms of advice is to get to the very best rehab center for spinal cord injury that they can, um, easily get to, you know, if, if, if they have to travel, they have to travel, but find your closest, best model spinal cord injury hospital and, um, do not think twice about it just to get there because this is a critical time in those first 30 days, 180 days, that's when most of the um, return, the natural return of the spinal cord will happen. It's usually in those days, so you want to take advantage of it. And you do not want to be languishing in a hospital who that does not have that expertise and can't encourage the progress when that is happening. Yeah. That would be my initial advice. The second thing would be have a team of people back home working on getting the house ready because you want to get your loved one in your home, hopefully back into their bedroom uh, and feel like a part of the family without upheaval. So some people say, why don't you just sell your house and move somewhere else? And well, that's a complete upheaval. And I didn't want my child to feel guilty. There's enough pressure. They're going through enough just trying to learn to eat, sleep, breathe, brush their teeth, pick up a cup to drink out of it. They don't need to think, wow, I just caused my family to have to move or this and that. So if you have a community that can come together while you're away and get that house ready for entry, uh, re-entry, <laughs> be ready for re-entry, um, then that's an, another thing to focus on. The Blink of an Eye Digital Resource Library will be a repository, including maps of SCI model facilities in the country and other rehab facilities with SCI expertise. Cutting edge SCI information needed in the first 30 days for best decision-making. Guidance tips and practices for what to say, what to do, what to ask for, hope and inspiration, and practical tasks for families, friends, and medical staff that can empower SCI families to guide the course of the SCI patient's healing and getting the necessary information they need to advocate for their loved one's well-being through all the various systems that spinal cord injury families have to navigate. Make sure to follow at Blink of an Eye Nonprofit on Facebook and Instagram for updates on the Digital Resource Library.
A third thing is trying to figure out the financial aspect of spinal cord injury because it is a pricey endeavor for sure. And so there's going to, there are organizations out there that can support you with rehabilitation of the house, like ramps, you know, access, door widening, that sort of thing. They are available to you through United Spinal Association of America. You just need to find the one that's in your state. And they can often help you with resources to make that happen. And then if your child is injured, there are so many people that want to do GoFundMes. Um, I would shy away from that if your child is underage and it's in their name because they may need to get on other social services. And if they have too much in their checking account, then they wouldn't qualify for that sort of thing. So I has, I, it's easier to raise money through a nonprofit in their honor than it is to just throw cash at a child that that could lead to a a big amount of problems. So we just had a lot of very smart people, Louise, that helped us um, in the background. My focus was coal. And I told everybody that I can't focus on anything but coal. And if they said, well, well, let's get your house and, you know, ready. And I'm like, okay, do whatever you need to do. I didn't really care about my house. I wanted coal to get in it, but Anyone else could make the decisions on that because it wasn't a make or break kind of thing for me. If, you know, they want to paint the walls yellow, paint the walls yellow. I want to get, my child needs to breathe here and I'm focusing on that. So I just had a very good, strong team of people back home that supported me. And I think that that is uh, really what got us through and we're just fortunate. So assemble a team of really good people. It's, the, it's really the truth, and really good people are absolutely out there. And in many ways, the larger your family, the more people there are to support. What they need is, we found, a primary coordinator who will be not the mama, but she'll be, the, she'll be like the main team captain. Uh, and then you have to have like a primary coordinator who has a whole lot of other captains on food and on the house and all the things that that you just said. And I I think one piece I might add to that would be a a prayer warrior team. You know, whatever your faith background is, it's one of the things that we're offering through blink of an eye, that even if if you don't have a faith background, we're going to have a team that's going to pray for specifically what you need today in the ICU or in the rehab for your family, for your son, for your loved one, whoever it is, and specifically, you just, you know, just text it. Families have already been saying to us that they, one that wasn't, um, you know, religious or didn't really practice anything, just simply how comforting it was to know Mm -hmm. that um, what they really needed. And And we know energetically, you know, that does, it does change an environment and change possibilities, make them more, more likely to actually happen and come to fruition. Well, I'm glad you said that because when I said assemble a team of really great people, my team was family, community, neighborhood, and church. And our church community was vast and strong and they were true prayer warriors. And I knew that I was at the top of the prayers every day. And I could say in my care pages, or I don't know if you did Caring Bridge, what you did, but I did care pages. And I would say, here is what I need today. I need for Cole to breathe, or I need for Cole to, I need for Clem to pass, you know, certification so he can do an IC and take Cole off campus, you know, just different things. So I had very specific prayer requests and it almost, it was ironic and divine that it seemed like whenever I asked for something very specific, it happened within hours of asking for the prayer. So people knew that they were on that team and they could see the progress based on what they did for us. And so much was done and the praying was like huge for me, huge for me. For for me too. And I, I think for Archer too, that he just knew that it was happening. And it's, um, yeah, I suppose for anyone of faith, we could say it's the most important but it lives right alongside, got to figure out the finances. And something that you mentioned that is so important is that most of the spinal cord injuries for 
for children, if they're under 18, can potentially qualify for rare and expensive medical coverage. I know we did, but for just a, a year in the state of Maryland through the Medicaid program. But then you, your, your child or your loved one can only have, at least then, about $2,000 to their name. That's still correct. Yeah. That's still correct. So, I don't think you know, that's changed since 1971. It's it's pretty heinous actually because right. you know, you you could you could take a you know, somebody in their 20s who has a $25,000 a year job or a $20,000 or an $18,000 a year job and they they've just been bonked out of being able to qualify for for Medicaid mm-hmm. with a 3-year yeah. look back. So, and of course, that's a, that might simplify it a little bit too much, but we we experienced yeah. that in a dastardly kind of way because we had a 529 college plan that had been set up, and uh, we had two of them, knowing that they could be transferred amongst and between our mm-hmm. children, and mm-hmm. Archer being our fourth, we had exhausted one of them, and we were on the other end. Our financial planner, advisor, just the guy, a broker who set it up, totally unintentionally or or maybe with intention but not realizing the ramifications, put in Archer's social security number. Oh, no. Yeah, and not no. ours. And it didn't have tons of money in it, but it had over $2,000 in it. And so we were thumped right out of a program and with a three-year wait and then there are all, all lots of other things in the background that, that can be hovering for people too, whether it's a claim, a lawsuit, lots, lots of financial pieces that go from the, the Medicaid world up to like thinking that there's nothing, but then the foundations and then the foundations can really help you along, but, but just in, in small increments, like to help you get your house Fixed. Like get, we, we can know. donate a ramp. Yeah, okay. we donate and a ramp exactly. Helpful. Or we might we can donate ten thousand dollars in your in your rehabilitation, which might cover a week. A couple months. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not a yeah of the yeah. intense. And maybe a couple months if you're out doing outpatient, you know, a coming outpatient in. Outpatient or neurofit or something times. like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Very pricey. It's like eighty five, ninety dollars an hour. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all back, very pricey. You know, at 11 years ago. Precisely. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what it it's is a, now. Yeah. So it's a lot more now. But, you know, just to, it's scary, but there are resources, not, you have to cobble them together. You have to be pretty clever. But and it's, that's it's, I this, think, a shame that it seems so convoluted and difficult to navigate when you're thinking about, well, how, where do I get help? Where do I get started? And then Medicaid kicks in. Then you've got these facilitators and care coordinators. And you thought that you were out of the overwhelmed period and you were just getting started when it comes to trying to finance a spinal cord injury. It is, I felt like I had to be a detective. And I, I started to resent that. I thought, why is it so difficult? Why can't they make this more streamlined uh, for people that are in crisis. This is a crisis. It is. It it, is. And I I really, we don't have a workaround on that, except that um, you did it. We do it. My other navigators on our team all do it, where the, the parents, usually two, have alternated and with one being dominant at any given time in caregiving. You get the experts to tell you what it's going to take, and other quadriplegic families will say that it it can be two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year in twenty four seven nursing care, and so you do a workaround. <laughs> and right. even if you do have some resources, you want to stretch right. it out, so you do a workaround and tell us about your workaround with your being the primary well, caretaker. For for me, I was fortunate enough to, the minute that I heard that Cole was hurt, and I assumed right away that he was spinal cord injured, and I called into my work, and because I would call them in the afternoon, my support team in California, and I'd say, I'm not calling in this afternoon because my child is paralyzed, and I'm on my way to the hospital, and they said, you don't know he's paralyzed, you're not even there yet, and I said, but no, I know. So I'm just telling you now, I'm not sure you're going to hear from me again. And quite frankly, that was it. That was my retirement call. At that point, retired from work because I was going into a full-time caregiving role and I knew it. 
And so when I worked with Cole and got him back home, I'm trying to figure out how can I get back to work? You know, I'm still on the disability, even though I knew this is, I don't know how I'm going to be able to go back. Luckily I was able to do that with my husband working, but it came, it came to be so difficult to find quality, responsible, loyal caregiving outside of myself. And Cole was terrified of it. And so was I. And so we just decided that our life was going to take a different turn, that I wasn't going to go back to work. And I really legit was retiring from that type of career. And I was going to be his full-time caregiver. And I went to college with him. That's what that looked like. I actually moved in to his dorm room. Can you imagine fate worse than death for a child? (laughs) Here's my mom. So, but we did too. (laughs) Billy, Billy did the weeks. I did the weekends at Penn. Yeah. Until COVID. Yes. See, so it can be done. And so we did that. And then he came home and um, lived with us for um, a time. And then he met a gal at um, where he worked out and she worked with patients and the inpatient, but she happened to be coming through the workout facility and asked the workers if they needed anything while she was coming, cutting through. And they said, yeah, would you mind helping him off the FES bike, which is functional electrical stimulation for those who don't know. And she said, no, not at all. And so she immediately put her hands down his pants to pull off the electric pads from his bottom. (laughs) He's like, really, this is how we're going to meet. And, um, they're married now. So long story <laughs> short, they're married. Incredible. And, um, and I've and seen they, them. I saw them right before COVID together. It was such a joy. Good, good. Well, they moved out to California and they, they have a YouTube channel and they're on Facebook and Instagram and doing all sorts of things. And Cole is pursuing acting and um, he's doing a great job of that. He's landed his first role and an executive producership on that. So things are cooking along for them and I couldn't be more proud. So there is life after spinal cord injury, but that is how I became retired. They got married and moved away. (laughs) So now I don't caregive for him anymore. Incredible. And so who is caregiving for him now? Charisma. No kidding. She's taken on that Mm full-time responsibility. Yes. And she eased into that with us when, um, when they were engaged and she was staying with us, she would assume more and more and more of the care. She wanted to assume more of that care before we were ready to turn that over. Cause Cole was just, he didn't want it to affect their relationship. He wanted it to be boyfriend, girlfriend and fiance, you know, that sort of thing. But she was, she has a rehab tech and she has skills and she was going to school to get her graduate degree in uh, occupational therapy. So this wasn't, there was no surprise for her. She knew it all and she just needed to know how we do it with Cole. What is the routine? And he thought it might be a deal breaker for her, but it wasn't at all. It, it sealed, it sealed the deal for her. Amazing. And so, I mean, um, absolutely I, amazing. I couldn't love her more. It, it, it was, it's really just amazing, but we still share duties. When they came home to visit, they were here for 14 days, maybe a little bit longer than that. And I did all of Cole's care when they were here because every caregiver needs a break. Yes. You've got to take a break because it wears on you. Yes. Um, and you want your relationship with that person to be whatever it is, mother, son, or wife, husband, it shouldn't always be, I'm now just the caregiver because that can get old, you know? So everyone needs a little bit of a break. And so Clement can help out. I help out. Cole's brother helps out. Initially, most of his friends knew how to do his care so that he, if I wasn't home and he was hanging out with his buddies, if he needed something, his buddies could take care of that. You just heard Kelly discuss best practices for how to provide support for a friend in shock from an event of overwhelming loss and complication. It might give you some ideas for how you might provide support for friends or some compassion you might bring to yourself if you are currently 
in the midst of a traumatic medical crisis. Tips for friends of SCI families, as well as for medical staff interfacing with SCI families managing their crises, is also part of the Blink of an Eye nonprofit's digital resource library, now underway. The information will be geared to SCI families, friends of SCI families, and medical staff, since most hospitals across the United States have little to no SCI training or experience for the best care of an SCI injured person, or how to interact with newly injured SCI families still in overwhelm. Yeah, it's really so, amazing. And what's, what's his level of, in, of injury? He is the, well, okay, so he's broken at four, five, six, and T10 or T1, whatever the highest one is. Um, but he, his spinal cord was basically mangled at C5. So yeah, it's, I'm, it's, I do hope for one day that there'll be something. I, I do too. You know, look at, look at Cole out there, you know, already becoming an actor. Arch does not view himself. He, he might live some ways as if he is disabled, but he just doesn't view himself or like the word disabled or view himself as disabled. He's like, I'm the same person. I'm just in a chair. <laughs> exactly. But, but his needs are pretty great. You know, technically no one should even leave him for any length of time because he can't even clear his throat, let alone cough or anything like that. But he manages and he doesn't want anybody around him while he's, you know, doing his art and he's got a studio assistant and hasn't gone back to finish school yet because of COVID. And now, you know, he's busy doing his art. Not sure he wants to, he was an engineer at University of Pennsylvania. So, you know, the different paths that they take, we'll see. But I, I right. love that you are a retired care giver and you just might be back in the saddle when grandchildren come along. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're both hopeful that our sons, despite these awful, heinous injuries, might still be able yeah. to have children. Yeah. Well, they're working on it. And um, we have we're very, very hopeful. And I just know that my services will be called back into action. I've already been told. <laughs> right. Well, it may, maybe you move to the uh, West Coast or they move back to the East Coast. Uh-huh. Yeah, something like that. I actually got a second department in uh, California, I think, in, in preparation for this. They uh-huh. moved their uh, studio, their work studio, into the other apartment, um, which is 30 seconds around the hall. So, uh, But it does have a second bedroom so when they need people to come in to help they'll have a space for them to be so yeah really. I think that might be my home away from home for a while beautiful yeah there's a lot of um there's a lot of pivoting and um mm-hmm. for us similar you've done it with such grace and with the grace of God and lots and lots of other people who helped us and we still have other chapters to go and yeah, yeah. And be more, to, more to come. <laughs> I was talking, thinking about the journaling and writing things down about seeing progress or, you know, making sure that you remember what doctor you spoke to or what the, you know, temperature was yesterday. Um, and did he eat and all those types of things. But overall, if you look back after a year and you start, you stop seeing large progressive leaps you don't see anything and you're getting discouraged but then if you keep track and you look back and you say wow we really have come a long way it just didn't look like it and so those are the kind of things that the journaling helps with and it keeps you motivated and positive and hopeful because you may not think that it's a big huge physical leap that emotional strides have been made too and acceptance has has been found there's so many things that you can document for progress. All look back. There on. really are. In fact, I'm I'm thinking of just affirmations that we give ourselves, and it sounds like one of yours that you would offer to others is, "I accept change." Yes, I've always accepted change, and I know that that's hard for a lot of people. I find it exciting and adventurous. I could have done without this adventure, yeah. but it, yet here we are. 
And it wasn't a life ender. It was a life changer. But, you know, I'm okay with things changing in my life. And as long as you have that attitude, I think that you can, um, you can slay this. You really can. I, I really agree. And maybe it could even be, I celebrate change. I would never mm -hmm. in a hundred million years would have ever imagined or asked for this. But, you know, maybe in, in closing for me too, just last week, Archer had had both of his hands and was able to actually get him up. And he went like this to get his hair off his face. And he's never done that in seven years. And I was like, I said, Oh my gosh. I said, do that again. Do that again. And he was like, what? You know, like I've done, it. I said, no, no, please, please do it again. And you know, he doesn't have his arm, but, but he, but he's, he got him, he got him up, you know? Yeah. And it was just so figuring amazing. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so he's starting to use gravity and he's starting to use the tools he does have. And that it takes a long time Cole's still figuring out reading body signals you know like he'll get chills and he's like okay I know that means I need to uh, go number one yeah. or that's a number two chill or you know but it, it's 11 years in and yeah. he's still learning himself so it's a it's a new day every day and I would go back to 2011 and change everything that happened that day. But I can tell you, Cole wouldn't. And he has said so on a number of occasions. Wow. Yeah. It, it, I, I did a double take when he was being interviewed and they said, you know, what would you do differently? He said, I wouldn't do anything differently. I love my life. Um, and I feel like I'm a better person. So takes my breath away <laughs> because Archer told me the same thing. He says, I'm, I'm probably better than I would have been. They're just, I think they're so grateful and humble. Yeah. And that's, those are two qualities that are hard for young men to live into. Yeah. Let yeah. alone older yeah. men and older women, you know, any of us. Right. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for your insights, Kelly, and for paying it forward with other SCI families. Your generosity of emotional support and care inspired me and planted one of the seeds for our sharing information and support through this podcast and through the Blink of an Eye nonprofit. If you have questions related to spinal cord injury, spinal cord injury trauma healing, or relational approaches for navigating SCI and traumatic brain injury recovery and rehabilitation, and want them answered in the Dear Louise series, you may reach out to me by email at louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. In future episodes, I will be interviewing others who live with spinal cord injury and are thriving to hear their insight and wisdom. I will also be bringing on guests who have been touched in some way by spinal cord injury, whether personally or professionally, who can also be responsive to your questions to expand our collective SCI treasure chest of knowledge, tips, and how-tos for responding relationally to SCI and TBI trauma. Until next time. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love, hope for everything, obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Dear Louise series. 
Listen in next week for the next Blink of an Eye story episode, episode 26, The Edge of Hope, How Wonder and Awe Propelled Us Forward in SCI Recovery. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and following. And thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.